0: Welcome to Seven Things EMS, a continuing education offering from Liver Education. Seven Things EMS is designed to give you what you need to succeed in EMS. It's conversational, informational, and without the fluff. All right, welcome to another episode of 7 Things EMS. I think I always probably start and say, I'm excited to, but perhaps today, most excited, have a topic that's got a great clinical book and an outstanding guest who you will recognize the voice relatively quickly if you're on TikTok. The topic, 7 Things Research Tells Us About EMS Practice, and the guest for this episode, Jimmy Apple, Now, I'll tell you, he's a 20-year paramedic, 911, and uh, critical care experience. But where you're going to know him from is as the EMS Avenger on TikTok. You're going to recognize this voice. You're going to recognize the insights. And if you don't follow him on TikTok, or if you don't do TikTok, I would recommend doing it just for this. And I'd like to welcome you, Jimmy. And uh, let's let's do some conversation.
1: Okay. Uh, I do want to mention that I know that a lot of people are averse to TikTok. And so for that reason, I have started reposting some things to Instagram, where I am EMS Avenger. And I have a Facebook group called EMS Avenger, where you can find my videos.
0: Awesome. Uh, and, and they really are worth doing. I literally look forward to your TikToks. They're great, uh, insightful pieces of information. And that's quite frankly why I reached out to you to have you. I appreciate it. So we have seven things that research tells us about EMS practice. Now we can put the caveat on, like we do in a lot of uh, clinical podcasts that you of course have protocols and that interpretation of science can vary between person to person. But I found uh, Jimmy's, information on TikTok to be very relevant and how it's going to affect your practice. And the seven things he provided are things that you're going to think about. I don't think you'll go by a week of any EMS experience without encountering most of these. So let's go to number one. let's let's start in this. that's our, our hallmark here is that we get to it. we drive through it, keep people's interest. Working codes on scene increases. Survival.
1: Correct, and I am always surprised on how this is uh, information that that people didn't know. Uh, this has yet to be the prevalent practice in the U.S., and uh, I practically broke TikTok on my first video about this almost a year ago. Um, but it's true. Uh, normally, in EMS, we're accustomed to showing up, <clears throat> getting our interventions in place, and then getting out of there as quickly as possible to the emergency room. But we have one study after another now that has informed us that moving a patient intra-arrest results in lower survival. Uh, One study in particular, one of the most recent ones, suggested that working a patient on scene could double your rates of survival. The conclusion was actually that transporting would half your rates of survival, but you can look at it either way.
0: I think there's uh, several elements
1: in here that
0: are very relevant to EMS. I think the first is that we have to change our mindset that we can do this, and in not every case, it's about going to the hospital. With that, we also have the subsequent uh, benefits or side effects of that we're doing better CPR, we have more concentration, more continuity, I'd even venture to say more safety because working a code in a moving truck is certainly no fun and potentially dangerous as well.
1: Absolutely. I actually have a pretty popular video uh, and I need to pin that, but uh, I have a uh, sealed baggie that is filled with red fluid to simulate blood and that bag is filled up all the way to the top. And I demonstrate how I can take that bag and I can hold it upside down. I can move it to the left. I can move it to the right. I can shake it. And that blood is always filling that bag. But somebody who is in cardiac arrest doesn't have the same hemodynamic tension anymore that is keeping that bag nice and tight. And so I have a second bag that's filled about halfway through that would recommend the relative uh, hemodynamic status of someone in cardiac arrest. And I demonstrate how if you tip that bag or hold it upside down or move it to the left or to the right or shove it forward or shove it back, that that fluid sloshes all around. And that's exactly what happens when you transport someone in cardiac arrest. They don't have that vascular tension. And so you can have a lot of volume distribution when you're transporting somebody and that affects uh, your coronary perfusion and it affects your cerebral perfusion. And that is the primary challenge in transporting someone in cardiac arrest. And so you are much better off leaving them exactly where they are and not moving them and subjecting them to that sort of uh, inertia and that sort of force that uh, can be so detrimental to their survival.
0: Anything that you would say to systems now? That feel they have to uh, transport, that transport is their uh, priority. And we're going to go to number two, which is going to bridge to this very nicely. But what would you say to the agencies or the medics? Uh, Sometimes it's older time medics that feel they've really got to move, that they don't want to work the code there.
1: A lot of the rationale is, but there's doctors there, or but the cath lab is there, and what they don't really understand is that there is a cap to expertise when it comes to cardiac arrest. Uh, you know, eighty five percent of cardiac arrests are uh, cardiac in origin. You know, and are kind of your boilerplate cardiac arrest where there was some sort of major cardiac event, and it doesn't require a lot of brain power to resuscitate them. It requires diligence in your resuscitation practice. And there are diminishing returns on putting academia in front of them. And if you don't bring a salvageable patient to the hospital, they don't go to the cath lab anyway. And they also, for the most part, practice some sort of variation of ACLS when you get them to the hospital. They're not doing things Any differently than you would, and in some cases, their resuscitations may be a lot worse than yours. Uh, You know, resuscitations in a clinical environment are still subject to the same dedications and passion that they are in the field. And if someone is running it in a disinterested manner or not in a diligent manner, uh, it you know, bringing them to that scenario doesn't benefit them.
0: All right. And I think we need to have some confidence, some mojo, and to get out and work those codes and keep our survival rates going. I did a podcast early in this series with the American Heart Association's uh, Director of Education, and he said that the Heart Association has been trying to get the national survival rate over 10% for a long time. Yeah. we've hit a certain plateau with that. And I think that this, and maybe even the next uh, point we're about to go into, uh, might help that process.
1: Sure. And let me just add that I, I said a lot of things there earlier, but what I need to put a cat what I need to uh, emphasize is that it's all about your compression fraction, which is the amount of time in a two minute cycle, compression cycle, that you're doing quality compressions. And the lower your compression fraction, the lower your chance of survival. So anything that interferes with that is not conducive towards survival. And one of the biggest interferers in your uh, compression fraction is moving a patient. And and that's what I would ultimately say to somebody that has questions about uh, transporting, is that because it interferes with that compression fraction.
0: Well, let's roll to number two then. The more that we go into advanced life support, the more we bring in technologies, we decrease survival. I think that's gonna kind of hit the bedrock of a lot of people out there doing ALS.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, When it comes to survival in cardiac arrest, uh, what you need to do is actually very simple. You need to perform high quality compressions, and you need to provide timely defibrillation. Those are the only two interventions in cardiac arrest that have any quality evidence behind it. And so the more tech the more technology that you bring into that practice, the more you have the potential to interfere with those two things that we know improve survival in cardiac arrest. And that includes things like IVs and IOs. The practice of access itself doesn't necessarily infer a benefit. Uh, it brings in, you know, pharmacological technologies such as epinephrine or lidocaine or amiodarone, or you know, going down the rabbit hole of bicarb and calcium. Uh, none of those things have a body of evidence behind them that they improve survival. And with bicarbonate calcium in particular, the evidence suggests that routine administration of both of them lowers survival. And you have advanced airways of, you know, different types of advanced airways, including, you know, tracheal intubation and supraglottic airways like the King and the iGel. There's uh, There's no body of evidence that infers A benefit to the patient with those advanced airways. Uh, The only benefit is essentially the positive pressure that you're doing to keep the lungs from collapsing. Um, And then we get into more of what I call the toys that are coming out now, including impedance threshold devices, the active compression, decompression devices, mechanical CPR, the heads-up CPR devices. All of those things have either no evidence or low-quality evidence behind them. And so, if you're not dedicated to the two things that improve survival, which is quality compressions and timely defibrillation, uh, the way I look at it is that you are putting your patient into a a technological circle of death. And there are multiple studies out there that show that survival is higher with BLS as compared to ALS. One of the most notable shows survival with BLS being 13%. And ALS being nine percent, an even comparison of bystander compressions to ALS shows higher survival rates.
0: I'm going to take that technological circle of death and makes me instantly want to make a graphic for it.
1: I'm actually working on a talk about that, and I'll tease it. It's going to be called Kevin Costner and the Circle of Death. That's all I'm going to say. All right, I want to. See, I want to see that.
0: What would you say to the ALS provider that says, hey, wait a minute, I went through and learned how to do all this stuff. I went through ACLS, I did this, what What should I really do?
1: Uh, you should be focusing on improving your compressions. It's all about compressions, 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 and then reducing time to defibrillation, you know, and... Uh, the AHA has finally caught up to pre-charging the monitor, so you have that monitor ready to defibrillate. You hit the charge button fifteen seconds before your rhythm check, so you have that finger on the shock button. So as soon as compressions stop, you can rule in or rule out a shock within seconds. You should be able to, as soon as those compressions stop, you should be able to recognize V-fib or VTAC. and if neither one of those are there, then you then you clear your shock and you keep going. If one, or, if one of those are there, then you hit the shock and you immediately resume compressions, but you should be able to reduce that perishock shock pause to three seconds. Because the thing is, is that it takes 16 seconds to build up enough intrathoracic pressure to perfuse the heart during compressions. From the start of compressions, it takes 16 seconds. But it only takes three seconds to lose all of that pressure. So your job should really be about never losing that pressure if you can avoid it. Now, you can start getting mastery of that process. And when you're a service like Hilton Head Fire Department or uh, Seattle's uh, Medic One program in King County, they've mastered the basics. And so at that point, they go on to master some of the advanced practices like endotracheal intubation. But if you haven't, if you don't have a mastery of those uh, advanced practices like intubation, then you shouldn't be disrupting a quality uh, resuscitation with those practices.
0: Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. The first is that uh, Hilton Head, in Seattle, we often have very passionate uh, profits of things done there. and I think that's beneficial. And I think EMS also hangs our hat on our skills. They're the badges, the rockers we used to put on our patches. And what I really would say in this, I'm kind of the the big picture differential diagnosis, critical thinking guy, is that advanced providers bring good assessment, experience, and judgment in. And I think those things have value and we can't ignore those. We should put more preference on some of that than on the things we do,
1: absolutely. All
0: right, number three. <laughs> this I don't know if there's one that I would pick. Might be the biggest lightning rod here. Uh, I would say it's this one, and nitroglycerin with an inferior infarct and right side uh, is safe. And I think I have probably heard more spirited discussions on this than anything else at those conference dinners and all the side conversations. Tell us about it.
1: Uh, Yeah. um, So there is this dogma that we have in EMS that you should either use caution or they'll say it's nitroglycerin is completely contraindicated in the presence of an inferior myocardial infarction. So first of all, to clear up a little bit of misinformation, uh, the risk is not with an inferior myocardial infarction. Uh, The risk is with a right-sided ventricular infarction, and that's because uh, an inferior myocardial infarction, anywhere from 30 to 50% of the time, are accompanied by a right-sided ventricular infarction because it's a proximal RCA occlusion. So let's just say that there is a risk to administering nitro in that situ- situation if you have an inferior mi literally the first thing you should be doing is switching your v4 to a v4r to confirm whether or not there's a right side accompaniment and in the absence of that then that nitro administration would be completely safe but the fact of the matter is is that that risk really isn't there and we can trace that dogma back to a uh, 1989 study that was a single-centered, low-powered study of 28 patients that claimed that there was a risk of uh, cardiovascular collapse due to preload dependency of the right ventricle. And that pathophysiology has started to come into question at this point, but that those results were amplified by several papers, but never actually reproduced. And it fed into this kind of like cyclical intensity that created this wariness of administering nitro to patients experiencing a right ventricular infarction. But there have been multiple studies since then that have had much larger cohorts that have not reproduced those results. And so The conclusion is, and pretty confidently so, is that nitroglycerin is safe in the presence of any infarct of any location, and that really your concern should be just about giving nitro to somebody with a soft blood pressure. In fact, this year at the Gathering of Eagles, which is a very large conference that's attended to by some very influential researchers and medical directors, people who are really the movers and shakers and decision makers in EMS, and they declared that nitroglycerin is safe in the presence of a right ventricular infarct. So this this is some of the most classic EMS and emergency medicine dogma that there is, but unfortunately, it's baseless and there's no evidence behind it.
0: We have issues changing our mindsets about things in EMS, sometimes significant, the number of people at the EMT level that are still taught to give everyone oxygen or oxygen calms people down is, is pretty dramatic. And I do agree with you that this pronouncement at the Eagles uh, is big. I think that it's an outstanding place to get information, uh, get some of the current thinking. I Absolutely. hope that it gets I hope it gets to be more current thinking. Uh, then some other things we've had trouble accepting. We, you know, I heard from this, or I had this one patient who leads what we do too much.
1: Sure. And and I mean, everyone is going to have that patient who had an inferior MI or even right side involvement that they gave nitro to and they become unstable. And the claim is not that this doesn't happen. Uh, The claim is that it doesn't happen with any increased frequency as compared to other regions of the heart, and that your concern should really be just on focusing on the patient's hemodynamics and avoiding something that could cause hemodynamic collapse if they don't have a solid blood pressure. But even then, the half life of nitroglycerin is like five minutes, you know. And so, if you did cause somebody to go down a little bit, you have the ability to combat that with several types of medications you know, and that should resolve on its own relatively quickly. I think we've all had the
0: lower the head, run some fluid, let's see if we can keep this from happening patients. Absolutely. But no matter where it is, that could happen. I think that's an important message. Number four, minorities are treated for pain differently.
1: Uh, That's true. And this is probably one of the most well-studied things in medicine. And... It's, it's based on common teachings back during the slavery era and beyond that uh, kind of sought to justify uh, our abuse and treatment of slaves by stating that they had different physiologies than that of white people. They were more pain tolerant. They had thicker bones, thicker muscles, less sensitive nerve endings, and that infected our medical practice. Uh, and, you know, as, as We've progressed on as a society and um, become a more progressive society when it comes to uh, race. That has, you know, become more influenced by socioeconomic status. Uh, But the data is pretty clear on it. Uh, One study showed that with people who presented to the emergency room with fractures in the emergency department, that the pain, about 57% of them, Uh, received some sort of pain management as opposed to 75% of white people who received some sort of pain management. And uh, when it comes to patients that have some sort of like recurrent or metastatic uh, cancer, uh, the WHO standards for pain management, the World Health Organization standards for pain management for those patients were not met in 65% of minority cases as opposed to 50% for non-minority cases.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. I think we can let that stand as it is and uh, move on to number five. Okay. Actually, before we go on, I think we should acknowledge that minorities really weren't ever studied. And now that we're learning a lot more, Is there anything else you want to add to this before we go
1: on? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the biggest disparities is between the pain that minorities are reporting and how we're actually assigning their pain. There was one study that, uh, examined the pain, you know, when they were asked about their pain score, what they were reporting versus how the MDs were actually scoring them. And, uh, there was huge disparities between what uh, black patients were reporting uh, and uh, what uh, uh, white patients were reporting. And uh, 47% of the time for black patients, physicians reported lower pain scores for them as opposed to only about 33% of the time for white patients. So uh, black patients are not even given the benefit of the doubt as far as how valid the pain they're reporting is. I think
0: this is uh, really important and going forward, something all clinicians really have to keep on their radar for not only this pain difference, but in the other changes in cares. Uh, recently, we talked about pulse oximetry not being as accurate in darker skin patients. So I That's think right. that all is important.
1: And it, it also, thought, also underscores that, you know, overall, we still, uh, as a whole, we undertreat patients when it comes to pain.
0: A mentor of mine and uh, a medical editor in my EMT books would, uh, even in times before there was big QI, he'd say, okay, well, good. You got the, the pain from eight down to four with nitroglycerin. You realize it's still a four. You know, all of our concepts of analgesia and what we do in EMS probably are still maturing.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Cartazen, number five, may be more effective and safer for patients than adenosine. Correct. Um, Who doesn't doesn't like to give that adenosine and everybody holds their breath? Man, that's a
1: big thing. We as providers, we love to give adenosine. I mean, it's fun to give adenosine, right? But uh, patients hate being given adenosine. And, you know, they report that Feeling of impending doom, and they really do feel like they're going to die, and we have to, we need to start considering that to be an adverse event. Uh, you know that there are people that can actually become traumatized by that sensation; they don't forget it. Uh, but there was a, a study done. It was a smaller study, but it compared conversion rates between cardizem and Denison. They looked at fifty-two patients. Who were given either cardizem or adenosin in some sort of supraventricular tachycardia. And out of those 52 patients broken down into two even cohorts, 100% of them were converted with cardizem and about 80% of them were converted with adenosin. That's not a large, compelling study, but the thing is, is that y- you should be able to look at the pathophysiology of what's happening in SVT and re-entry rhythms and understand that those are both can, uh, calcium channel blockers. And one is converting adenosine by essentially uh, hitting the patient over the head with a shovel, while the other is converting that SVT by giving them a foot massage, which is the uh, it's I know the visual for this. This is, <laughs> it
0: might be a, a podcast you listen to, but you're knocking it out of the park today.
1: That's right. Uh, you know, but it it makes pathophysiological sense. So if you're protesting the size of this study, you know, or how over, how underpowered it is, it makes pathophysiological sense. And Cardizem is given all the time in the field and in the emergency room to convert SVTs. And it's just, it's just a more compassionate way to treat your patient. They don't need to become asystolic for six seconds and to feel like they're going to die Uh, It works very, very well in this regard. And and there's no huge, large, overpowered RCTs, but there are other similar studies that have demonstrated the same effects.
0: Again, now you're going to see where I am the, the big picture person. I do think it's fascinating about what you say about what type of event that causes for our patients. You know, we're the masters of you're going to feel a little stick you know, with the 16 gauge or you're going to. We don't always think about those concepts. We're used to a, not an austere environment, but certainly a much different environment than a hospital and a certain different attitude. I think it's time that we start considering these things as part of the bigger picture.
1: Absolutely. I can remember. uh it was about two years ago, I had this sudden stomach cramp and, uh, boy, it was so painful. It wasn't like that sudden bowel urgency. Like you see these people that have that vagal response, but it was just this big cramp. And suddenly I started getting diaphoretic and, uh, and then I felt like I was going to pass out and I just could feel the world slipping away. And for, you know, I'm in medicine and I can coach myself through these things. I knew it was a vagal response, but I was terrified. That was a year and a half, two years ago. And I still think about how terrifying it was to see consciousness slipping away from me. And I can't imagine what it's like to uh, have already have this condition that you may not understand. Maybe you're just having it for the first time or maybe it's the sixth time you've had it and uh, you're just terrified about having this condition overall and somebody is giving you this medication that you literally feel like that you're about to die. I could not imagine the trauma that patients feel. And I've had patients and and a lot of people have had these patients that just would rather be cardioverted than being given a Denison.
0: When people write any EMS agency, They don't say, you checked my distal pulses and put the splint on appropriately, or you chose this medication. Patients have an objective sense of being taken care of. And there's a place for that in medicine as well, I think.
1: Absolutely. All
0: right, going on to number six. I think this is one that people are probably going to agree with. I do a lot of exam preparation, obviously. Everybody says, well, how do I remember the Glasgow Coma Score and what to do? And under stress, we don't always do judgment or math particularly well. Glasgow Coma Scale Scores aren't consistent between EMS providers. And I think in the bigger picture in the healthcare provider scheme, we're certainly not the best at it, and what does it what does that mean for us?
1: So we're we're not good at it at all. In fact, not many health care providers are very good at it. And uh, to back that up, there was a study conducted by Brian Bledsoe and at AL, and uh, everybody should be familiar with Brian Bledsoe because uh, if you are a paramedic practicing right now. You have probably learned a lot of what you learned from Brian Bledsoe because he's the author of many paramedic uh, textbooks. Um, But uh, he had a study uh, that looked at over 2,000 observations made where Glasgow Coma Score was factored. And that was from every single provider, EMT, paramedic, critical care paramedic, nurse, residents, and ED physicians. The overall accuracy was 33% and there was only about a 9% variability between the three categories so that they were accurate between 60 to 69% between the three categories the the lowest scoring was nurses at 29% the highest scoring were residents at 51% probably because they're just brimming with all that knowledge they just learned there was another smaller RCT that looked at just EMS scores and 60% of their scores were inaccurate. And that's even when one cohort was actually given a scoring tool to use. Their accuracy was still only 57%. And so it's it's pretty evident uh, that we just aren't good at accurate GCSs. Now, there may be a utility for GCS for the clinical environments and the surgical environments and then the trauma room environments, but it, it, there's almost no utility for EMS. We don't do anything because of GCS other than document it for someone else, you know, unless you're still one of these people who are doing you know GCS less than they innovate, which is also dogma, not backed by evidence. So it's it's really just a cognitive sinkhole for uh, the EMS provider.
0: Is there value in it clinically?
1: Not for our not for our clinical practice. I mean, it's the sort of thing that we have to document when we're filling out vital signs, you know, or it's a QA requirement. But I have never in my 20-year career made a decision guided by Glasgow Coma Scale. I'll
0: go with that. I... Think about uh, providers and APGAR scores. You know, how we do those often retroactively. Nobody is looking right after a birth thinking about APGAR. You no. know, how we use these tools and what we do, I think, is certainly open to more discussion.
1: And it's not something that lends itself to easy memorization, neither the APGAR, the APGAR nor the GCS. I've been in EMS for 20 years And if you were to tell me right now that I needed to factor this patient's GCS right in front of me, I would need a tool because from a cognitive standpoint, I don't have the bandwidth to deal with that because it doesn't guide my practice. It is always something that I'm filling out after the fact or put on the spot for by the emergency room. And so I've learned to keep uh, something on our action area that I can refer to during that call in but it's certainly not something I can calculate quickly. And I have no problem admitting that.
0: No, me either. No, I'm totally there. I think it's probably also worthy to note that the lower the GCS, the higher the acuity and the more our mental processes are taking, taken elsewhere.
1: Absolutely. But there are things that can actually still help us guide acuity that are not as complicated as that. I mean, GCS was never even intended to be used the way we're using it. It was used, uh, I think it was post-surgery, for patients that had head injuries to track how they were trending following that surgery. And they were three separate individual scoring systems that were never meant to be combined. So it's just interesting how it's adapted itself into a very not useful tool for EMS in spite of that.
0: All right. Number seven. And this is of interest to me. I've talked about the most controversial, uh, things like that. But I think that this pegs pretty high on the relevance scale, even though it's not done all the time. Number seven, orthostatic vital sign changes aren't as valuable as we thought.
1: That's correct. And uh, orthostatics in and of itself for either EMS or for a clinical environment um, were really something that were put in place by consensus, not by some sort of body of evidence that said this provides, you know, some sort of great utility, uh, particularly for field providers. But um, the formal orthostatic change is that somebody who was in, you know, a... a, a a semi Fowler position or in a supine position uh, who has been in that position for at least 10 minutes, you would have them either stand up or put them at a 60 degree sitting up angle. And you would be looking for a change of 20 millimeters of mercury for your systolic blood pressure or 10 millimeters of mercury for your diastolic blood pressure after three minutes it's not sit them up, get your blood pressure, say, oh, their blood pressure dropped. They are orthostatic. That is not how it was designed to be used. And it's not informative in that regard. And that's not even a, a pragmatic or practical tool for EMS. And Despite that being the formal changes that we're looking for, there's never been a gold standard that has been established as far as what a positive change is for us. You know, we have in the field, we probably say the the 10 millimeters of mercury in your blood pressure, or a heart rate change of 10 beats a minute. But there's no evidence that we're actually getting accurate results even then. Uh, up to about 50% of healthy patients will have what we call positive orthostatic changes following the test in the way that we do it in the field. And then a high number of patients who are actually hypovolemic will have no change at all. So you might as well just flip a coin instead of actually doing the test.
0: Is there any validity in there anywhere? And I'm sure there are patients, perhaps the elderly, where it might be normal, right? We know that I come back from writing textbooks in the old EMTB days, and back then you could only do uh, capillary refill on kids. And the fact is, is that it could be used on adults, but geriatric patients could be normal at four seconds.
1: And geriatric
0: yeah. patients may also be more prone to these changes normally or through medication. And then to wrap up, me so I'm not getting too long-winded here. Is there a benefit when you stand somebody up to put them on the
1: stretcher and they say, whoa, I'm dizzy? That right there means that they're orthostatic. There is no test required right there. Um, Any person that has had a syncopal episode or is reporting dizziness standings should already be considered to be orthostatic. And between the history that you're taking and the vital signs that you're getting, you should have a relative suspicion for what their hemodynamic status is relative to that history. They may be compensating in a lying down position, but if they tell you they got dizzy standing up and they've been sick for the last couple of days and they haven't been hydrating, you don't need to stand them up and take their blood pressure and risk-inducing syncope to confirm confirm that relative hypovolemic status. You just got all that information from your history. It's relatively Uh,
0: unnecessary and cruel.
1: That's right. And I I just don't find any value in it whatsoever. And the other thing is, is I see it used inappropriately all the time. I see it used more often in patients who are already hypotensive. I get to a call and a responder tells me, yeah, their, patient, their blood pressure is 90 over 60. We stood them up to do an orthostatic. And I'm like, why? What were you looking for? And I think that happens very frequently. And so I think that it, it's... It's something that should just be abolished from our practice. I don't think it's informative. And in some cases, I think it's harmful.
0: All right. I do think coming back to something we talked about earlier, all providers and certainly advanced providers should learn the value of this critical thinking and what the appropriateness and risks are to people. I think what I'll do, I've got a couple of minutes left here which makes me happy. I'm going to throw. Uh, I do two things at the end of these. One is I give you a last word, but I'm going to pop a question to you first. Okay. And I'll give you the option. Maybe we'll cover your last word or not. I want to say, I want to ask the EMS Avenger. I say that because I just think that's very cool. What's the big picture advice that you would give people to not only use this information, but how do they get? this type of information on their own. I'll Plug your TikTok and Instagram and Facebook channels again, because I obviously think a lot of it and having you here in this electomy, what would you say to people listening to this going forward saying, wow, this is really cool. How do they do it themselves and how do they implement and practice?
1: Uh, I get that question all the time, which is how do you get this information? And <clears throat> the, the the short answer is is that you have to live and breathe to a certain degree within an EMS community. So think of some of the providers that are out there that are doing good work as far as getting information to people. I uh, you know, Foam Frat for one. Tyler Christofooli with Foam Frat, FlightBridge Ed, and there's recognizable names with people who work within FlightBridge Ed. Eric Bauer. IAMED. Good people. Yep. You know, all good people. Uh, uh, Gwenny Lawson, who works for IAMED, great creator. You just have to start following a couple of these organizations on social media. And this information starts coming to you. And when you start doing that, when you start surrounding yourself with these content creators and the people who create this content based on evidence based medicine and best practices you start rubbing shoulders with other interested parties and you start learning who else to follow, who else to talk to, the the cream rises to the top. And when you start operating within that community, this information is always going to rise to the top, the really good vetted information. And not only that, but the misinformation and the myth busting of it is also going to rise to the top. And Simply just being in that community is is going to be very helpful and having that information literally just coming to your phone screen as you're scrolling
0: I think that that's great advice. you certainly mentioned some very talented people, and I think that sometimes it takes one person or a couple people, even in an agency, to start these conversations. You get out there you Join these groups, you listen to people and you bring it back. And then you can be part of a discussion in your own agency. You can also be a messenger as well. Absolutely. And your last word anything else you'd like to add to this?
1: Uh, I always try to counter discussions on evidence based medicine with something philosophical. And when I teach, I actually lead with a philosophical talking point first so that we remember to ground ourselves in something human and real. And I always go back to a conversation I had with somebody who literally asked me, how can I save more lives? And my answer to that has always been is that first and foremost, you have to recognize the the innate value of life in every person that is on your ambulance. And when you elevate their humanity, And when you affirm the value that their life has, you save more than their life. You save other lives and you elevate humanity as a whole. I
0: don't know if I could have picked a better way to end that. We put some science in with some good humanistic thinking. I think that's just awesome. And we're right on time. There will be a few things we always say. The show notes will accompany this. will list some of the research that's been referenced, as well as ways to contact uh, Jimmy, the EMS Avenger, through his social media sites. And I think it's also safe to say something I'm very happy about, that uh, it sounds like you'll be hitting the conference circuit a little bit, and yep. I think that people will benefit from that as well. This has been seven things EMS, seven things research tells us, about EMS practice, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening to a 7 Things EMS podcast by Limmer Education. If you've listened to this podcast on a streaming service and you're interested in getting continuing education credit, please go to lc-ready.com for more information.